0: I'm Mark Leonard. And I'm Yanka Ertl. Welcome to Inside China, the podcast that will leave you smarter about what China's thinkers think.
1: Over the last few years, it's become much harder to tap into the discussions that Chinese intellectuals are having. There are almost no in-person exchanges and the space for debate has been shrinking for a number of years and we want to help to change that and engage in a conversation with some of the brightest chinese academics researchers writers and journalists on a whole range of different topics and try and bring china's internal debates to european
0: audiences In this podcast, we hope to receive answers from our Chinese guests that help us to understand concepts, framings, and ideas that are at the heart of current Chinese discourse.
1: Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Professor Wang Jisue, who is the founding president of the Institute of International Strategic Studies at Peking University and one of the world's most prominent scholars on US-China relations. Over the years, he's played a very important part in helping shape Chinese perceptions of the US and of many of the big issues in international relations. And his concept of March West, which he articulated in 2012, is seen as one of the key intellectual foundations on which the Belt and Road Initiative was built.
0: We're particularly keen on talking about China's understanding of global order and the current developments in the geopolitical landscape with a focus on U.S. China with Professor Wang Qis. Professor Wang, maybe let's start out with a topic that has dominated the news over the past couple of weeks. There was a big meeting in Bali, the 17th G20 Summit. Um, what do you think are the dynamics in Bali that drew your attention in particular?
2: In particular, there are more I'm more interested in the summit meeting between Xi Jinping and uh, Joe Biden. But of course, the G20 meeting has a lot of dimensions, including uh, individual meetings between Chinese leaders and, and his counterpart in various countries. And there are also many other things like climate change that were raised. But I think many of the G20 leaders declined to be photographed along with the Russian foreign minister, Lavrov, or a Russian delegation resulting in the lack of a G20 family photo in 2022. And to the Chinese, it was a loss because China is very sympathetic to Russia. China does not want the international community to exclude Russia, including this one. But actually... It was Putin, President Putin, who rejected the idea of joining G20. So this is something that I put into interest to. And another thing is that uh, at the same time of the G20, the U- UN uh, General Assembly had a bill passed condemning uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And China did not support the, this notion. And at the same time of the uh, of the G20, uh, Wang Yi, China's foreign minister, met with Lavrov. That means that China is part of the international society, but China is not joining any condemnation of Russia. So some people saw the G20 as an opportunity
1: for China to promote this new initiative, which is launched recently, the Global Security Initiative. For people who haven't been following that. As closely can you explain briefly what it is and what the implications of the Global Security Initiative are for the world?
2: Yes, Global Security Initiative or GSI. Uh, in China, it is called in Chinese 全球安全倡议. It's an initiative proposed by President Xi Jinping in April this year. Officially, the initiative is meant to quote, uphold the principle of the indivisible security, (laughs) build a balanced, effective, and sustainable security architecture, and oppose the building of national security on the basis of insecurity in other countries." End of quote. Analysts have described the GSI as a way of increasing China's global influence. At the same time, I want to add one other subject that we are interested in. That is, uh, in Bali, uh, Xi Jinping noticed that the world is currently undergoing economic difficulties. So he also proposed the Chinese idea of global economic initiative. So the GSI
1: and the GEI, some people see them as kernels of a a new... Sinocentric world order. Is that a good way of understanding them?
2: I think it's the Chinese way of proposing principles is based on the understanding that these principles will not be opposed by any country. So it has basically principled and is not specific like the condemnation of Russia or the condemnation of the nice. After all, it is more abstract. Uh, And this is a Chinese way of thinking. The other uh, slogan China has proposed is a global community of shared future. So if you ask Chinese, what does that mean? That doesn't mean anything specific. Does it mean that we'll all be under under heaven? Is there a new version of the all under
1: heaven concept, Tung Xia?
2: So you you will not oppose that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and if you don't oppose it, you <laughs> accept the idea. And this is a Chinese strategy. You know, all, all, we have friends all over the world who are supporting our principle.
0: Let's come to a very special friendship, uh, uh. the U.S.-China relationship, at the moment, which has not been particularly doing so well over the last couple of uh, years, and um, many believe that. Xi's bilateral meeting with Biden did send some positive signals uh, for the U.S.-China relationship, particularly here in Europe. That smile that Xi Jinping had on his face and Biden had on his face was perceived as like there is a positive sign coming out of this. Do you agree?
2: I think it is a positive development that the two leaders could sit together, have face-to-face discussions. In the past, Uh, three years, uh, all their interaction was uh, virtual and uh, indirect. So I think this is positive. The second positive thing I can imagine is that they uh, reached an agreement not to fight a war or a military conflict. They are not in the the mood of uh, engaging each other in a, a new Cold War. That means to me that they are trying to arrest the downward spiral of the bilateral relationship, but I also want to caution against the too much optimism uh, uh, on on the uh, uh, summit. They are saying they would have stabilized relationship, but neither side had the notion of improving the relationship.
0: So this was not about getting to a stage where you can talk about kind of positive economic relationships or anything that really builds on that, but putting a floor under the relationship at a very low level, basically saying, avoid military confrontation. Would that be the the correct reading of it?
2: Yes, but uh, they also uh, try to establish some uh, working groups together. That might be uh, military and military contractors, uh, security dialogue and other things, uh, including climate change. That is a positive thing also. But at the same time, we are happy that Biden uh, said he does not see an imminent war over Taiwan that was trying to tell the Americans that they they should be somewhat uh, relaxed over the Taiwan issue. And on the Chinese side, we also are happy that Biden not only repeated the wording that the United States does not support Taiwan independence, he also said the United States does not support any scenario of one China, one Taiwan, or two Chinas. So 10 years ago, you and Ken Liebertal at the Brookings Institution
1: um, co-authored a study on on what you called strategic distrust, and you predicted that things were going to get worse in that department and that the mutual distrust would grow, I think events have proven that you were both uh, right about that. Can you say a bit more about where you see things going in the future and whether you think that this distrust is doomed to carry on growing ever further?
2: I think since we published an article, uh, the mutual strategic distrust between the United States and China has deepened to a great degree. But then I have a second thought, that is, is truly a distrust and the issue between the United States and China? I found out that distrust is a universal phenomenon, even in a certain country between politicians. For instance, in the last U.S. administration, the president and the vice president did not trust each other. (laughs) And until today, they didn't trust each other. So how can we establish true trust between the United States and China? Because we have different political systems, different ideologies, and different uh, economic interests. So I don't think the trust will be established. I know you don't trust me. And I know you don't trust me. Uh, You know I don't trust you. I know that you know I don't trust you. (laughs) So that will be a long time. The relationship could not be built upon mutual trust, mutual interest, and mutual common goal are to avoid war or armed conflict and to promote economic cooperation. Strategic competition between the United States and China could become more intense and comprehensive than the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States, the Soviet Union also had economic and technological competition with the United States, but they were separate and mutually exclusive. The difference is China and the United States are inter- interdependent in economic terms and in other, other dimensions. So I wrote a piece of hot peace, and I read Marx's very excellent book on end peace. I think they are similar. That is. Connectivity can cause conflict, and we have to rely on Airbus and Boeing for our airlines, and technological decoupling is happening between the United States and China. I'm worried about that. Do you think that the decoupling is likely
1: to increase tensions, or do you think actually it could, in a strange way, decrease
2: tensions because there's less points of friction that I think the decoupling is worsening the relationship. I got to know quite a few business people and uh, scientists and technicians. They are very much upset about decoupling uh, in sensitive areas, but they cannot do total decoupling in, for instance, in uh, AI or in producing and using chips. So decoupling can only happen... in in some militarily sensitive areas, not overall.
1: So last year, you published a book in the realm of political philosophy, which is called Essential Goals in World Politics. Can you briefly tell us
2: what those goals are? The goals I describe, which I call uh, essential goals in world politics, five uh, security, wealth, faith, justice, and freedom not in an order of importance or priority. There are some other goals, like happiness or interest, but they are too vague. And there are also goals like democracy and rule of law, but I see them as means to achieve ultimate goals I describe. And one thing that is important to remember in China, that unification between China China uh, uh, the Chinese mainland, Taiwan, is very uh, dear to China. as very peculiar to China. Other countries may not take reunification that seriously or unification, national unity, that seriously. For instance, uh, Czechoslovakia was divided into Czechs and Slav Slavia, and they they were not very sad about this. This so this is also in other countries, a religious belief is is the, the ultimate goal. That this is also peculiar to some other countries. So there are general roles and there are, not, there are also exceptions. C- can I just ask you one more question about Taiwan? Because
1: everyone's terrified of the prospect of a war in Taiwan. I think it's the scariest thing that people can imagine in global politics. And you've worked on it more than, than anyone else, particularly the US-China relationship around it. From a Chinese perspective, what do the dynamics look like? Because I think in the West, people are talking about how China is ramping up its actions in response to Nancy Pelosi's visit, how you know these unprecedented exercises which took place and, and what that means. But from a Chinese perspective, I think a lot of people think that the US is trying to change the status quo and the dynamics. How would you describe that, that dynamic going on?
2: Uh, Of course, in China, most people think that the United States is trying to change the the status quo because they send a lot of weapons to China. They sell weapons to Taiwan. They send politicians, uh, including Nancy Pelosi, to visit Taiwan. And some U.S. uh, politicians even support Taiwan independence. So that worries the Chinese. But from the American point of view, it is, China that is trying to break the status quo. So that kind of in tension will last for a long, long time. My take of the issue is that China is still in favor of peaceful unification and one country, two systems. Uh, but we cannot give up the military option. That is, if Taiwan goes to dual independence, we have to make them suffer. And But is that does that mean that China would t- take over Taiwan in one military stroke? I don't think so. I think it will, The military tension will last for a long, long time. But I don't foresee any major war between the two sides or between the United States and China over Taiwan for the time being.
0: In uh, in recent weeks, we also had one kind of seminal event in Chinese domestic politics. That was the 20th Party Congress. Taiwan did not actually feature so high on the agenda there. It was other topics that were more dominant there. From your point of view, and kind of having digested the Party Congress already a little bit, what do you think are the implications for China and also for Europe that we should kind of take away from the Party Congress? What are the things that you say we should kind of think about from the outcomes of the Party
2: Congress? I would put three things that should be understood, not only in China, but also in Europe. First, Xi Jinping is a primary leader that cannot and will not be challenged in the foreseeable future. The Communist Party is further tightening control of the Chinese economy and society, applying various political and technological instruments. Second, national security is the top priority, overriding economic growth if necessary. And the zero COVID practices are still going on. Political security and the security of the party leadership is the most important agenda in China today. And we just talked about Taiwan. Taiwan is a national security issue. And third, the international environment is described as more challenging and unstable. There are hostile forces within China and hostile forces abroad which are reinforcing each other. And so we uphold uh, the principle of a spirit of struggle. And we want to dare, we want the slogan is dare to fight and be good at fighting. So there will be no compromises in any foreseeable future. And we don't, we probably will expect Europe to be less hostile than the United States toward China. But also, we understand they both, the United States and, and Europe, both uh, belong to the West, the Western camp. Beijing will continue to promote economic cooperation with Europe, but guard against political influence on China.
0: Can I just maybe briefly dig in a little bit deeper on one of the concepts that you have raised there? That's the concept of struggle, which was very dominant as a feature in the party Congress. What exactly does it mean? Uh, what should Europeans understand about the concept of struggle coming from, like, from the twentieth
2: Party Congress? Struggle be, can be against uh, some against some uh, uh, visible enemies, like you know, if the United States continues to support Taiwan independence, we will have to struggle with them. And uh, the struggle can also be somewhat uh, uh, abstract. For instance, to, uh, the struggle against uh, COVID. But after all, I think when we talk about struggle, we remember that in about 40 years or 50 years ago, class struggle was the feature of the day. Mm-hmm. So I hope we will go, we will not go back to the class struggle era and we will struggle against some more abstract problems like COVID and economic downward.
0: So one of the things that is really difficult to unpack here in Europe is also the kind of new personnel tableau that we're seeing, the new lineup of people. From your vantage point, who are the people that we have to watch out for from a European uh, for a European audience, trying to get a bit more literate about the politics of China at the moment? Who matters most? Who will shape the debates of the future? Who in the current setup is someone to watch out for?
2: Uh, in the standing committee, of the Politburo, there are now seven members. Four members are relatively new faces to the outside world. Uh, for one thing, Li Chang uh, is probably going to be the premier, and he is a party secretary. He was the party secretary of Shanghai, and you notice and we notice that Shanghai was just under... Underwent some dramatic changes in in fighting Covid, and Tai Chi is another nervous person we should watch, and he was a party secretary in Beijing, and probably he is going to be in charge of propaganda and general political businesses. Both Li Chang and Tai Chi were very resolute in carrying out Xi Jinping's instructions on covid so I don't see any debate in the the central leadership. There will be no different voices. Everybody, I think, around Xi Jinping is paying uh, a lot of respect to him and they are loyal to Xi Jinping's leadership. Can we just talk for a second about COVID? Because in Europe now, for a
1: number of months, societies have been opened up. People are traveling again and they're already thinking about the next set of crises around the war in Ukraine and other things like that. But in China, COVID is still very much part of the everyday experience. What do you think the kind of long term societal consequences of having lived with COVID for for several years now are going to be for China?
2: In the last several years people had expectations that this episode of COVID will, will go away sooner or later. But in the recent few weeks and months, people were somewhat more frustrated to see this as a long-term threat to our personal life. Uh, So some people are explaining, uh, are expecting a long-term problem. That is, COVID will live with us for a long, long time to come. So where's the end of the tunnel uh, where we can see some light? Not many people know that. Uh, we hope the COVID period will, will will go away soon rather than late.
0: So the last thing we would like to do on this podcast is pick our guest's brain a little bit on what to pay attention to coming out of Chinese internal conversations among top thinkers and intellectual leaders. If you think across all the different policy areas that currently are kind of important for the conversation, what's the one area in which you think Chinese intellectual debates are currently the most exciting and interesting. There is the most interesting research and ideas coming
2: from? In China, we don't appreciate debate that much. <laughs> we don't have debates in in uh, in, in our politics. Officially, we don't have debate in our uh, in our politics, and uh, different voices uh, today are dormant or silenced. I'm talking about politics. In my area of interest of international issues, every single social media platform is led by the dominant voice, which you know what it is, which is criticisms of the United States and the West in general, praising China and praising the Communist Party leadership. There is no other voices. So we don't see any future that it's going to... Uh, I think that, that that is a new feature Uh, of China's uh, politics, uh, that's going to persist in the near future. That is, we are not going to have any debates.
0: Thank you so much, Professor Wang, for your blunt and honest assessment of this current situation.
1: We hope that you've enjoyed it. Please do subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you've used to download it from. And while you're there, it'll be wonderful if you can give us a positive review and a five-star rating.
0: We will put all the links to things we've discussed, publications we've mentioned, obviously on our website, ecfr.eu slash China. But for now, from Wang Jisu,
1: From me, Mark Leonard.
0: And from Yanka Ertl, it is goodbye.
1: The researcher of this podcast was Sonia Lee.
0: And the editor of this episode was Marlene Lee.